A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill, yet it is still one of the most important acts of this Congress and of this administration. For it does repair a very deep and painful flaw in the fabric of American justice. In 1965, the year the Voting Rights Act was passed, Another less famous piece of legislation had perhaps an even more dramatic consequence for the character of American society. The Immigration and Nationality Act, signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson at a ceremony at the Statue of Liberty, overturned the restrictive immigration laws that had been imposed in the 1920s. By abolishing racial preferences, the rules that had made it relatively easy for people from the British Isles to emigrate to the United States, but very difficult for people from so-called darker races, this new 1960s legislation opened up a new phase in the story of US immigration to people from Asia, the Caribbean and Latin America. Today, Mexicans and people from Latin America make up about 50% of the total immigrant population. And Latinos are now the largest single non-white bloc in the electorate, if that is, they can be considered a coherent bloc at all. In the early years of this century, one of the axioms of American politics, this was only 20 years ago, was that the ever-rising share of Latinos in the electorate would deliver democratic majorities. Just as previous well-defined immigrant groups like the Irish or the Italians had also once been bulwarks of the Democratic Party. Demographics, it was thought, were destiny. But it hasn't quite worked out that way. As the 2024 presidential campaign ramps up tonight, we are taking a closer look at how the Hispanic vote is going to impact the upcoming election. Although large majorities of self-defined Latinos continue to support the Democrats, the picture is far from homogenous. President Joe Biden is trailing former President Donald Trump in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada and Pennsylvania. That's according to the poll. In one much-discussed poll conducted at the end of the last year by the New York Times of six swing states, 40% of Latino respondents said they'd support Donald Trump. Hispanic vote is expected to make up about 15% of all eligible voters in this next presidential election. They're a crucial swing block in all the crucial swing states. That's Biden's challenge, right? He really needs to do something to get Latino voters and black voters too excited, right, about voting for them. What are you going to do? There is a concerted outreach and mobilization effort from the GOP to Mexican-Americans in the lower Rio Grande Valley that yields results. So who are we really talking about when we talk about Latino voters? What binds these 60 million people who are from such different experiences and such different histories? What binds them together? How has their vote mattered in the past and how does it matter today? I'm Jason Casellas, an associate professor of political science at the University of Houston. I'm also the John Wynant Visiting Professor in American Government at Oxford University. 
and I work on Latino politics and American government. I'm Ana Sampaio. I'm professor of ethnic studies and political science at Santa Clara University. Ana, let me let me start with you. When we talk about Latinos, um, what is this group and how should we talk about them? They are not simply an ethnic group like white ethnic groups or a racial group as we think of other racial minorities. They're somewhere in between. The general idea is that this is a population with a heritage in Latin America, but for for whom their identity is um, directly shaped by their experiences in the United States. So it is a U.S.-based identity. And there are lots of different things that bind the population together. These include things like a mixed-race heritage, indigenous, some European, depending on where you're talking about. If you're talking about people from parts of the Caribbean, from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, from Brazil, there's also an African heritage that's often in the mix as well. There is also other cultural factors that bind the population, including language, including English and Spanish. But again, who you, depending on who you're talking, it could also include some French. It could include some Portuguese as well. There's often a religious tradition that runs through the population, Catholicism being the largest kind of binding element in the religious tradition, but that's changing. So, um, you know, some of the recent data suggests that less than 50% of Latinos self-identify as Catholic these days, where it used to be as, almost as high as 70%. But two key factors that a number of people point to that help to bind the population. One is this dual colonial history. That is a history that is informed by European colonization that, again, produces a mixed race, produces uh, a kind of um, uh, a kind of displacement. Um, right. And so it wasn't that those people came to the United States. It was the United States came America, to them. And that serves as a powerful factor for the creation of some of the first Latino, Latina, Latinx communities in history. And then uh, consequently, a history of discrimination and displacement in the United States, including things like the perception that they are perpetual foreigners. So regardless how many generations one has in the United States, the sense is that they don't belong. They're not really here on a permanent basis. They have no purchase or claim on, on a U.S. identity. And these are some of the qualities that have informed what we call a Latinidad, a sense of oneself, a, a sense of binding in the community. Jason, I'm really struck by uh, Anna's use of the term Latinidad there. That seems to suggest that there's some... So it, it's as much about an idea of being Latino. That it's, it's about a culture, about a sense of being somehow at odds with, different from an idea of a kind of traditional, in inverted commas, dominant sense of who America is. It, it, would you agree with that? Right. I mean, I think one of the, the big issues, of course, is that when you look at Latinos, they're coming from all over the or all over Latin America, as Anna said. And so what that means is you have people who really identify more with their national origin group. And so if you ask them, you know, how do you identify Oftentimes, especially if they're first, uh, you know, immigrants who who, nat who are born uh, overseas, they're going to say they're Cuban or they're Mexican or they're Puerto Rican. And so this process of of um, sort of becoming Latino or becoming, um, you know, part of this larger what we call pan-ethnic uh, community is something that I think develops once they're here and could go into the second and third generations. And so that's kind of what we've seen a lot in the past, especially when there have been sort of external threats or policies or positions that you know, that are anti-immigrant or slash anti-Latino, then that could create right. this sort of pan-ethnic identity. 
Um, but on the other hand, you also see Latinos have the highest rates of intermarriage with whites. And so many Latinos can choose to identify, you know, as sort of quote unquote white, um, if their parents are, you know, one parent is Latino and the other one's white and, and they can pass, right, a, a, as white. Yeah. And so, yeah, these are some interesting dynamics that we're seeing unfold now. And, and Jason, I, I, Anna's made this really important uh, point that um, when we're talking about this group in the largest sense, we're including people who, who never at any point either in recent generations or, or long ago made a choice to be in the United States. The United States came to them. But it is also the case that um, if we think back over the last 50 or 60 years, there's been a huge change in the character of immigration uh, into the United States. And in my introduction there, I mentioned the uh, 1965 Act, which repealed the very restrictive immigration regime which the United States had had run, especially since the, the 1920s. And that, that year was 1965. It's a significant year, of course, because also the passage of the Voting Rights Act. It, it really seems to me that 1965 was, was also pivotal because up until 1965, the story of race in America had often been spoken about in terms of a binary, a black-white binary. It's become impossible to, to do that uh, since 1965, uh, hasn't it? Right. So as you say, 1965 was that turning point with the Immigration and Nationality Act, Hart Seller. And there you see this opening up where you see um, really many more people coming from Latin America than before. And so that creates this situation in which you have more awareness of this growing group, right? And if you look at since 1970, you see a dramatic increase in the number of Latino elected officials, right? And it's not just because of growth in population, right? We have to remember that it's also because of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which uh, really created the conditions by which more Latinos and especially African-Americans could get elected to Congress and could get elected right. to state legislatures. Because prior to 1965, you know, you didn't have um, preclearance because, you know, in the United States, you have all 50 states can determine, you know, uh, legislative districts. And so prior to the Voting Rights Act, states, especially in the South, Texas uh, in particular, you know, would be able to create legislative districts without any kind of um, uh, external check. And since 1965, although this has changed very recently, the preclearance provision of, uh, of uh, the Voting Rights Act, which is called Section 5, you know, any changes in legislative districts had to be pre-approved by the Department of Justice um, or the D.C. District Court. And so since 1965, every 10 years, there's a census, right? And you have redistricting. Um, you know, states like Texas have been sued pretty much every time. Right? Yes, as ever, everything ends up in the, in the courts in American politics, as we've discussed many times on this podcast. And I wonder, I mean, another thing that happened, of course, in, from, through the 1960s in the wake of the, of the Cuban Revolution was there's a very distinctive migration to Miami and to Florida from Cuba. Now, whenever I, I've been in sort of politics conferences and talking to folks who know vastly more about this than I do, people always say, well, of course, the Latino uh, vote is, is very very heterogeneous and, and, and Cubans are always different, you know, in, in explaining why Florida might look different politically from California or even Texas. People say all oh, the Cubans are always different. Um, I mean, Anna, can you sort of this is a this is a I'm putting a lot on you here, Anna. But I mean, can you give us a kind of a quick sort of geographical tour of how the picture looks different depending on where you go? 
the Latino population really has to begin in many respects with the Mexican-American population because it is effectively two-thirds of the entire Latino population, just under 60%. Um, and it is based in the Southwest, not surprisingly because this is territory that used to be Mexico, right? So a number of the states that we are in, including California, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, parts of Colorado... And, and just to interject, Anna, just so that listeners know, but one of the modern world's most successful wars of territorial acquisition was the war that the United States waged against uh, Mexico in the 1840s, which That's dramatically right. increased the territorial area of the United States, including bringing all of those territories that you're talking about into the US. And that obviously included an existing population. About 100,000 Mexicans who were in the territory of the, the Southwest that effectively become the US after the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And it's important to note that part of the reason the border was drawn where it was drawn was precisely informed by this question of race about who belongs and who can claim purchase in the United States. And so one of the purposes of drawing the border where it was, where it currently is, was to incorporate the fewest number of mixed race people, but the greatest amount of territory. And, and so that's in part why we get that mixture there. That forced incorporation sets a, a, a standard for how Mexican-Americans in particular are going to be treated relative to the federal government. This idea of we need your we need the bodies, we need the labor in particular, but we'll keep you at arm's length in terms of full incorporation and the full recognition of even things like citizenship that were initially extended after that treaty. But what ends up in the Southwest is a predominantly Mexican-American and then increasingly after the 1970s and into the 1980s, a large Central American population that's dominated by um, people from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Um, those three populations, and actually four populations, tend to make up the bulk of the Latino population in the Southwest, disproportionately Democrat. We're talking about somewhere in the range of, you know, voting Democrats, 65 to 75 percent, um, depending on the election, the candidate. And Anna, can you sort of position these people socioeconomically? The Central American population, the Mexican population tend to have some of the lowest socioeconomic um, kind of uh, indicators, some of the highest rates of poverty, um, lowest rates of home ownership, um, some of the lowest rates of uh, per capita income or household income. Their experience in the United States tends to look more like the experience of African-Americans than it does like whites. And historically in, in California, Mexican uh, migrant workers were used in the agricultural sector and were given you know, no rights. And in, fact, in the 1930s, I mean, I, I said at the beginning that you could, you could, you could imagine race relations up until 1965 as black and white. But of course, that was never really complete, ever completely true, especially right. not in this part of the country. And one of the first things that Franklin Roosevelt's administration did, in fact, was to restrict the ability of, of, of migrant Mexican workers to, to work in California in order to supposedly give those jobs to, to white folks. It's a double-edged sword, right? Because they've always been a preferred class of laborers so that there have been even exceptions to some of the most restrictive immigration policies that you've even mentioned. The National Origins Act makes exceptions for workers or for people from the Western Hemisphere so that there has been an attempt to bar other groups of people from entry while at the same time welcoming Mexican laborers into the United States. As cheap labor. As yeah. cheap labor. And, and even, you know, there are contractual agreements embedded into things like the Bracero Program, which we now know as, you know, infamously having um, a, a number of encroach, encroachments on labor 
rights. But there were a number of, of, of initial promises and contractual agreements made during that period to ensure people rights to not only pay and wages, but to insurance and transportation. Now, they weren't fulfilled, right? So that's a different story. But so you've got a population in the Southwest dominated by Mexican Americans and then Central Americans. But if we move to Florida, this is a, a an area that's dominated by Cuban Americans and not any Cuban American population. The politics and the cultural life in Miami and Florida is dominated by what we often call the golden exile community. This is a population of people, 200,000 plus, who come after the 1959 Cuban Revolution and then the kind of 10-year period post-Cuban Revolution. where And they're golden exiles because they're bringing a greater level of wealth than 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 others but also because they're sort of somehow politically privileged because they are the opponents of a uh of castro right. who is by very quickly presented as being a, a communist threat in the context of cold war america the treatment that they receive at the hands of the united states is unlike any other latino community there is a red carpet treatment that results in a kind of incorporation and attachment in the united states and a kind of relationship that no other community coming from latin america has has had and i or- think within that within the racial politics of cuba these were the the light-skinned right. cubans who were able to and, and and wanted to migrate to the United States after the after the Castro's revolution. Right, we're talking about an elite population, both uh, phenotypically, uh, um, uh, economically. Um, you know, they they have political capital that other populations don't have. So, and that's the initial wave post nineteen fifty nine that that golden exile community that then also gets, like I said, this open arms treatment from the United States that includes not only access to political asylum, but includes also low-income loans, access to favorable um, you know, contracts, assistance on housing, assistance on relocation, access to education loans. I mean... Anna, this is not... Uh, you, one, of the, one of the ways in which you were offering definitions of this group at the beginning was their experience of racism or uh, oppression in the United States. Are you, are you saying that these, these golden exiles from Cuba are an exception to that? I mean, that has well, not that been their experience. I, I'm saying in this particular moment, once they in their arrival, they, they they provide a platform for incorporation that is very welcoming. That's not like other Latinos. I'm not saying once they come to the United States that they don't experience discrimination. They do. Right. But on a different scale than other Latino populations. Now, Cuban Americans are not monoliths, neither are any Latino groups. And that population of Cubans in Florida changes over time, as does subsequent waves of Cuban migrants. So when we get into the 1990s, we're talking about a population that is far more dark skinned. We're talking about a population that is far more uh, low income. In some cases, it's it's, uh, people who have been released from prisons in Cuba that are allowed to then migrate. That population that comes then to Florida encounters the golden exiles in a way that is quite tense so that there is all kinds of racial tension between those two groups. There is um, a number of economic tensions. There's political tension over rights. And the Cuban exile community that comes in, the golden exile community, ends up associating disproportionately with the Republican Party Subsequent waves of Cuban migrants do not in the same capacity. There is often a, uh, a stronger attachment to the Democratic Party or uh, a kind of uh, independent sort of spirit amongst those populations. So it's not a monolith. It's not the 
universally Republican stronghold that people often paint it as. It's a much more complicated picture. And it's then informed by subsequent waves, including Venezuelans, including South Americans who also migrate to Miami that also change that mix in Florida. Jason, Anna's given us a brilliant overview there of the of the situation in, in California and through your state of Texas and into and into Florida. What about the, the places where traditionally immigrant groups across the centuries have always clustered, which, of course, are urban centers? Um, can you give us a quick overview of, of the, the politics of the Latino population outside of those areas that Anna's discussed? Right. And so I'll kind of pick up with Florida and say a few things and move up. <laughs> um, so, you know, as we talk about the Cuban population in Florida, um, Anna had it right that you had sort of the exiles that came just after the revolution or maybe into the mid 60s were very different than the ones who came uh, 1980 with the Marielle boat lift in particular and beyond that these are darker skinned people who in 1980, for example, people who were political prisoners, but also um, sort of quote unquote undesirables or religious minorities, gays and lesbians and so on. And then you kind of um, move on to the more current moment where Venezuelans are the largest you know, group of immigrants and, of course, fleeing the same kind of system that Castro created, but we don't see the same kind of welcoming. And I think that's an interesting contrast, right? But I would say as we think about moving toward New Jersey, one of the things I'd like to mention is that not, you know, not all Cubans went to Miami. They're, they're sort of a diaspora that's all across the country, mainly in some of the major cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, and New Orleans, but also New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey Union City is where a lot of Cubans uh, settled. And there are many sort of Cuban-American politicians that um, emerge from that uh, that area, and they've mostly been Democrats. And so, you know, as Anna mentioned before, yes, most Cubans, uh, you know, are Republican, especially those who were born in Cuba. But that's sort of changing as we see new new waves of Cuban immigrants uh, coming, that they're not going to be as strongly Republican. I suppose one thing that um, that I keep on thinking about as I'm listening to you both give this very sort of interesting historical account of the of the complexity of of latino immigration over the last 60 years and longer is i keep on thinking how similar this sounds to other uh, immigrant groups going back into the 19th century so the tension between initial uh, immigrant groups and then later waves and the question of how far they want to integrate into a kind of predominant anglo protestant america and how far they want to change the nature of america in order to seek acceptance the strategies that they use through um, politics the local bases that uh, diasporic communities can could form in the united states using local politics as a way of supporting their community and articulating and advocating for their uh, people is that the right way to think about this whole story as, as it were, the latest iteration of a pattern that we've seen with the, the Irish and the and Jewish immigrants and, and Germans and Italians through the 19th and into the early 20th century? Or is there something different and distinctive that we need to understand about the Latino experience in the late 20th and 21st century? That's a complicated question. And I, I think you can get 10 different answers. I'm going to say it's a little bit of both, that there is this pattern of conflict and some degree cooperation and cooperation to some degree, but it is definitely mitigated by a history of racism and a racialization of this population that is not always obvious. So that even in places and in times where people have wanted to literally adopt 
a white identity, to use a kind of phenotypical closeness to a European past to try to pass, they have not been allowed to. But that, Anna, that was also true for, for the Irish, wasn't it, who were racialized? Right, but you don't have 5,000 Irish people being hunted down and, and lynched in the United States history, right? You don't have patterns of racial segregation in, in everything from elementary school to higher education disproportionately targeting not just Blacks but Latinos in the United States. You don't have an overwhelming history of immigration, detention, deportation, and removal aimed at Irish and, and Italian-Americans the way you do at Latinos. There is not the comparable history relative to uh, racial formations in the United States for Latinos as there were with these other white ethnic groups. So despite people's desire to incorporate, to become American in a way that erases a kind of distinct ethnic or, or cultural past, they're not allowed to melt. Mm. They're not allowed to melt. And racialization in the United States persistently keeps them at arm's length and keeps them from a kind of full incorporation. It's present today, right? There, that kind of tension is still here today. Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, there are two things that are important that are a little different. I mean, you have this continual immigration, which you don't have with the Irish and Italians. It was sort of more, you know, the Irish came, you know, with the potato famine, and of course, Italians came, but then there wasn't this sort of constant immigration. And so I think that reinforces a lot of um, sort of um, awareness of this group, right, as being immigrants, right? Whereas with the Irish and Italians, they sort of stopped being perceived as immigrants after couple generations. And then also another thing that's that's interesting is the continual use of the Spanish language, right? I think that reinforces kind of otherness. Yes. There's an interesting phenomena even in people's own self-identification where you have uh, more and more Latinos who are self-identifying not as white, but as mixed race. That is when you give people the opportunity to identify as something other than um, than white, people increasingly are taking that. This is a population that is likely to intermarry in, in large degrees. And so one factor driving that can be a kind of intermarriage that's happening. But there does seem to be some evidence that people are also recognizing a history that is not the same as other white ethnic communities. And, and that suggests a kind of difference. The socioeconomic statistics suggest their history, again, looks more like other racial minorities than it does like other white ethnic groups mm, that's so interesting and i i want to really sort of really drill down now onto the the the, the politics of this and you both very helpfully in your sort of this grand tour geographical tour of the united states that i asked you both to take us on were noting as you went the the, the partisan affiliations of the different subgroups within this large group that we're talking about why was it the case that 20 years ago or so there was this axiomatic assumption, it seems, that the rising uh, proportion of Latinos in the electorate would be clearly and categorically to the benefit of the Democratic Party to the point where some people, political scientists and some political operatives and commentators were predicting an emerging democratic majority that would tip the United States away from the partisan balance that the run of close elections that the United States has in fact experienced. That was once the assumption. Why was that so? Before we get into whether or not it's now true. One, the, the kind of uh, policies and practices of the Democratic Party, particularly as they're rooted in areas of labor, have tended to align more closely with 
uh, where Latinos are at. There is a kind of outreach, uh, if not a affinity and allyship that's happened between Democrats, both Democrats at the national level, but even more specifically at state and local levels between um, particular Latino communities. And here in particular, I'm talking about Mexican-American and Puerto Rican communities in the United States. Um, that didn't happen in the Republican Party as frequently or without very specific cause at particular times. There is a history there that uh, kind of rings or resonates within the Latino community more so than the Republican Party. Mm. It predates certainly the last 20 years when we're Mm. talking about, you know, 40s and 50s where you've got democratically minded labor activists that are reaching out to Mexican farm working communities and mobilizing those communities in advance of state elections or federal elections. Mm. I mean, this is this is a longer history. It sounded like a reasonable bet then to say that as the the racial makeup of the United States changes in this way and people who self-identify solely as white, um, I mean, you can ask demographers will give you different answers, but at, at some point the, the United States becomes a, a, quote, minority majority country, that this will work to the benefit of the Democratic Party. But Jason, one of the focuses of your research is on the relationship between the Republican Party and Latinos, in particular, the Latinos running for office, uh, not just voting, but running for office as as Republicans. So can you sketch out that, as it were, that counter history of the history, the longer history, if you like, of, of the of Republicans relationship to this group or these groups? Right. I mean, what we've seen, I think the, the demography is destiny argument kind of presupposed that you know, the Latino vote would be static, right? That parties wouldn't try to appeal um, to the Latino vote or that the Republican Party wouldn't try to appeal. And while today we we clearly don't see that, I think, with Trump, I mean, certainly in, in 2000 with George W. Bush, he certainly tried to appeal to the Latino community and, you know, with the element of compassionate uh, conservatism and and was able to do quite well with the Latino community stemming from his experience in, in Texas. So he was he'd been the governor of Texas anti George W. Bush. So he therefore his his relatively brief but uh, su- somewhat successful uh, political career at, at state level had been in an environment where he had well what how would you put it Jason where he'd had to uh, engage with uh, Latino voters or where he'd chosen to? I think it was a matter of choosing to. Um, and I think part of it was sort of his um, his own family background. I think his his brother, who was the governor of Florida, was married to a, to a Mexican woman. But I think there was a sense of just um, being in Texas where at the time it was about a third of the population was Latino, mostly, as Anna said, uh, Mexican origin, although most had been in, in Texas for generations, right? They're called Tejanos, people who, you know, um, speak Spanish, and, and, but, but have been in, in, in Texas for generations. Uh, but today we've gotten to the point where um, Latinos in Texas outnumber uh, whites, non-Hispanic whites. So it's about 41, 42%. Yet for the longest time, there was a sense in which Texas would turn blue, right? Because of turn blue meaning turn democratic, because these are the colors that are used because of this this growing uh, Hispanic population or Latino population. And, you know, we have not seen that. I think part of what we see here, Tejanos tend to be from more culturally conservative than, 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 um, than Mexican-Americans in California. Um, you have a much larger rural uh, Latino um, electorate in Texas. And so if you look at South Texas, which is traditionally a very heavily Democratic area, in the last few elections, you see there's sort of a lot of movement towards Republicans uh, and not just Trump, 
Right. I mean, in the 2020 election, there was a movement to the Republican Party in the, the part of Texas that borders uh, Mexico. Right. To what extent was that about Latino voters even there, even in those border communities, moving to the Republicans? Right. I think, I think what we see there is you've seen a, a large shift of rural communities. And so there's a big divide between rural and, uh, and urban um, communities when it comes to vote choice. And so urban areas are becoming more Democratic, rural areas are becoming more Republican. And that's been especially the case in Texas. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with these culturally conservative kind of values. Certainly church going is more um, prominent in these areas than in the cities. Also, the issue of guns, uh, you know, there's gun culture that you see in Texas, which you don't see, mm. I don't think, in California or other places. And, and this sort of idea that Democrats would threaten to, to take away their guns. And what about the issue of immigration, Jason? What about the issue of the border wall and those really Trumpy right. things, which you might think, you know, and if you read the New York Times or whatever, you would think, well, the last people surely who should be moving towards especially a Trumpified Republican Party are uh Latinos in in Texas, uh, as it were, in the shadow of the border wall that's supposedly been going. No, on. and it's uh, and and Trump got a lot of this support among Latinos, um, not despite of his views on on immigration, but because of them. Right. And a lot of times we just yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> if there are people listening who are your standard New York Times type liberal, explain that apparent paradox to them, then Jason. Why Latinos would vote for a Trumpite Republican Party because of their immigration policy, not in spite right. of it. Right. I mean, I think well, one of the things first to remember is that when you ask Latinos in general, what, which issue do you think is most important? Immigration usually is not at the top of the list. So that's that's the first point. Yes, I think the majority of Latinos will probably be sort of definitely in a more pro-immigrant, more um, opening sort of um, uh, you know view. But that doesn't mean about 30% or a little more, um, especially if you look at Texas. These are Tejanos who they've long been U.S. citizens, right? Um, they're not um, you know, recent immigrants or may have few family members who are in that category. And so they may see that if they live on the border, many are talking in the sense that they see the border as out of control and they want to see sort of more restrictions or more order in the border. Um, and if you, even if you look at some Democratic congressman like Henry Cuellar, who represents one of these districts, a Democrat, a sort of a moderate Democrat, you know, he's been sounding the alarm about this, about um, how too much immigration in his, in his area and his border area um, has had a detrimental effect on the citizens living there. This tension between newly arrived and natural born is a long-standing tension, and it exceeds this moment in 2020. It exceeds Trump. There's been a long-standing tension within the larger Latino community, as within other communities as well, between people who've been here for generations who have some political capacity or even economic capacity that they're seeking to protect or defend, and the perceived tension, in some cases even threat, borne by newly arrived immigrants. That plays out in even the formation of gangs in the United States, right? The What we know of as one of the largest gangs, MS-13 or Mara Salvatrucha, comes directly out of this tension between newly arrived Central American immigrants and the longstanding Latino populations in places like Los Angeles. Part of what happens, though, is that there is a concerted outreach and mobilization effort, a targeted outreach or mobilization effort from the GOP to Mexican-Americans in the lower Rio Grande Valley in 2020 that didn't exist before. And there is an investment of money, of energy, of resources. There is a mobilization that yields results. It's not surprising. 
it yields an outcome that is positive and favorable to the GOP. They also do that same thing in Arizona, in um, Southern Miami. There are targeted mobilization and outreach efforts on the GOP. So this doesn't just happen magically or mystically or without any provocation. It happens on backs of a plan from the GOP to exploit what are existing tensions. And they do so in, in some degree, I wouldn't say super successfully. And it's not as if we have you know, what some people describe mm. as this brown wave that suddenly mm. moves from Democratic. We don't see a realignment. That's it, not what's Anna, happening. if I were a Republican strategist, I think I would say um, that when you say they're exploiting the tensions, that's a pejorative way of putting it. They would simply say, well, that, that's what politicians do. They're simply making an appeal. But I suppose what I would also say if I was a Republican strategist would be a lot of these um, groups of people who under this umbrella Latino are surely natural conservatives. You've emphasized the importance, the historic importance of Catholicism, the importance of the family, their concern about order. Um, Jason's talked about gun culture. And why wouldn't, let me put to the question to you this way, Anna, I mean, if you were a Republican strategist, why wouldn't you be super optimistic um, over the next 10 or 15 years about the prospect of making big gains with this, with at least with some important subgroups within this Latino population? I absolutely agree that there is a potential and uh, there is there is a lot of ground. You know, uh, Priebus had said this as well. There is a lot of ground for the GOP to make in Latino communities. Completely believe that should be true. However, I, I don't accept the premise that they are our natural conservatives, that this is a very complex population. So even where there is a large Catholicism and a large religious tradition, it is mitigated by things like gender so that you know, people tend to believe, oh, uh, the Latino population is disproportionately opposed to reproductive rights and particularly access to contraception and abortion. That's not true for Latinas. That's just not true. It has not historically been true. It is not true in the contemporary. Latinas tend to be quite progressive on these issues, and yet they get painted with this kind of um, monolithic brush that just does not manifest. Um, and so it is possible for people to have an attachment to certain cultural traditions and yet have a political reading that is different from what we might expect, right? And so just because there is a Catholic tradition does not displace what is a history of hostility. And most Latinos, well, the largest group of Latinos surveyed will say that on issues of immigration and access, the Republican Party not only is out of touch, they are hostile hostile to Latino population. And if that perception is making the day, then the efforts towards outreach and mobilization and even more specifically incorporation are going to be an uphill battle. In the 2024 uh, presidential election, which obviously all our attention is for whether we like it or not, is going to be dragged onto kind of looking at what may be a pretty appalling spectacle of the, the coming months as we we look towards November 2024. Where should we be looking in order to understand the way the Latino vote is moving in terms of where it's going to have the biggest impact? Um, I mean, which are the swing states where the Latino vote is going to matter most? Yeah, I mean, I think Arizona would be one to look at and uh, Nevada. Um, so these are the two states that 
um, went for Biden in the last election, and they were really close, obviously. And in Arizona, sort of um, uh, Democrats did really well um, there in the last election, of course, electing um, uh, Katie Hobbs, a Democrat, uh, as governor. Uh, against Kerry Lake, who was a very Trump, uh, Trumpy uh, Republican. And then in Nevada, however, it was kind of interesting in the last election where they elected a Republican governor, but then we elected a Democratic senator who was Latina, actually. And so I think in Nevada, what we're seeing, the polls seem to show that Biden is sort of having some trouble there. And um, Arizona, because it's a close state, Nevada seems to be a place where um, Republicans are polling a little bit better. But again, as we as we know, with with the presidential races, it doesn't take many states right to to change the outcome. Um, And so those are areas that I would look at. Uh, New Mexico has seemed to sort of go into the Democratic column in the past few races. Uh, Bush won it by like 300 votes or something in 2000. But but that's a state that's um, that I think has gone into the Democratic column. Florida doesn't seem to be a swing state anymore. It's not in play anymore. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, Democrats, of course, will try to spend some money there to show that they're not conceding. Um, But but that's one that I think they probably won't spend a lot of effort in. Anna? I would say Texas and California, right? They're interesting because they're, they're both, you know, one solidly Democratic, solidly Republican. However, there are interesting congressional races in Texas. And that I think is worth watching out for, right? So you had somebody like Myra Garcia, who's a Republican Latina who won in a special election, then lost in a general election just a year later or less than a year later. But then another Latina Republican who just won in 2022. And you've got a kind of, you actually have a number of Latina Democrats who are running in races, either open seats and or, uh, you know, contesting incumbents. So Texas, I think, is an interesting place to watch, not necessarily for a national vote, but for individual cases. Um, I would put Colorado on the list as well. Colorado had been historically red and has, you know, consistently run blue, um, but is also a state that has some fluidity, uh, much like Arizona and Nevada. About 24% of Latina candidates who ran in the last election came from non-traditional states. So there's a growing population of uh, a small but a critical mass of Latinos who are coming from states where we wouldn't traditionally think of as being a kind of Latino-centered area. And these include places like Wisconsin and Georgia. Um, And it's not the case that the Latino voters themselves can make the day for a candidate or for a general election, but they can work in coalition to other partners, such as the existing Black vote in places like Florida, to ultimately swing a statewide race or to swing a critical congressional race. So I, I think it's also interesting to see where Latinos work in concert with other uh, racial and ethnic minority populations in Wisconsin, I would say Georgia and Pennsylvania, um, where they are uh, a small but a critical mass. One thing that I've also heard Republican strategists say, Jason, is that many Latino people, whether they're first generation or whether they still, or whether they are people who have family connections still in Latin America, uh, know what authoritarian government or extreme populist government. Uh, looks like they know what it's like to live in a much more obviously corrupt society in which there's a lot of gang violence and drug cartels and so on and so they are as a group republicans might say especially susceptible to the american dream to the individualism of the american dream to the kind of the appeal that the united states is a place where supposedly anybody can make it if you just get government off your back. Um, Do you think there's any truth in that? Well, I mean, I would say that, 
I mean, that sort of appeal of, of sort of coming to America and being able to have a, a good way of life. I mean, I think that's something that certainly many Latinos or most Latinos who are immigrants have experienced themselves. I don't think Democrats should sort of write that off as saying we're not a party of the American dream. Democrats should make that case. Um, that's Biden's challenge, right? He really needs to do something to get Latino voters and Black voters, too, excited, right, about voting for them. What are you going to do, right? And not just sit back and say, well, they're not going to vote for that guy, so let's just wait, you know, for them to come to us. No no block of voters should be taken for granted. I mean, I think that's something we can all right. agree with. Right. And to the extent that Republicans are trying to reach out and making inroads, it should be a good thing for Latinos, right? In the sense that that would hopefully lead to Democrats sort of making an effort. I mean, I think one of the reasons Republicans hadn't done so well in South Texas is that they weren't running candidates, right? And as Anna mentioned, they're starting to run candidates. And so if you weren't playing the game, you're not going to win. And now they're playing the game, so they're going to make some wins, right? You know, some people can perceive that as this huge movement. And I don't think it's that, but you have to kind of start somewhere, right? And that's what they're doing. Last last question. Are we gonna are we gonna see a Latino president within the next ten or fifteen years? And 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 if so, who do you think it's gonna be? <laughs> I mean, you know, my guess it'll be a Republican in the same way that um, you know, we have sort of already on the Republican side, you know, Rubio and, and Cruz ran for president. They against Trump. And of course they lost. So those were two who, um, who almost got, certainly Cruz almost got, you know, he was the last man standing right against uh, Trump in 2016. But, you know, I think the idea is on the, on the democratic side, it could be the sense in which if Democrats perceive that Republicans are making inroads with Latinos, then it would behoove them to think about a vice president, right. Who, who is Latina in particular. Um, and there, there's a great bench there that I mentioned the Senator, from Nevada, right, um, who's a Latina in the Senate, would be kind of, I think, a, a smart political move. Anna? I, I probably have less uh, less hope than Jason <laughs> that it's going to happen at the presidential election level. I think it's more likely we're going to see Latinos as, say, governor of California. I think that it's more likely we're going to continue to see a growth among the Latino electorate at the state level and then these kind of statewide races that are really critical. I mean, we've never had a Latino governor in California. Which is pretty remarkable, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's a Latino state, right? And yet we've never had it. And so, um, you know, I think that I'm more likely to see those kind of inroads being made and then an increasing capacity at the national level. I would love to see a Latino president. I just don't see it quite yet. Anna and Jason, thank you so much for this absolutely fascinating and, and important conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was talking to two experts on Latino politics in the United States. Anna Sampaio of Santa Clara University in California and Jason Casellas of the University of Houston. And if you're near Oxford, you can come and hear Jason deliver our annual Wine Ant Lecture in American Government at the Rothermere American Institute on South Parks Road at 5pm on February the 13th. Details are on our website, it's open to the public. And on our website, you can see the whole range of everything we do here, all our seminars and lectures and everything we do to support a fantastic community of researchers working on America and its place in the world. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that asks how history has shaped the United States and what it stands for. Our producer is Emily Williams, and my name's Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>